From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Thank Simone Biles may be give a nod to Ted Lasso. Coaches increasingly consider players' mental health. He doesn't just tell us about hockey, basically. He asks us how we're doing, like, not just on the ice, but, like, at school or anything. And he tells us what we can do to, like, improve as, like, people, not just as hockey players. Also ahead, workers at HelloFresh in Aurora may soon say Hello Union as the meal delivery service flourishes in the pandemic. And later, the nation and the world remember General Colin Powell. We listen back to his reflections on leadership at the Aspen Institute, including the decision to go to war with Iraq. We knew that Saddam Hussein had the capability to develop weapons of mass destruction. What we missed was he didn't actually have them. This is Alan from Golden. CPR is just so worthy that I felt really good about giving up my car to them. I donated my battered SUV, and CPR was able to receive more than three times what I would have gotten for it if I had just traded it in. Learn how to make your own impact with the vehicle donation on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Gymnast Simone Biles, tennis great Naomi Osaka, basketball player Kevin Love. They've all shined a light on the stress and fear elite athletes face. Meanwhile, more and more colleges and universities are hiring psychologists to improve players' mental health on and off the field, or the ice, as the case may be. And this awareness is trickling down to younger players at high schools and in youth leagues. High school freshman Hayden Skeen plays in an elite youth hockey league in Westminster. He says, for the most part, hockey makes everything better. It takes a lot off my mind. Like, I can can have fun with my friends, and it does relax me, like after a stressful day at school or anything like that. But that school stress can creep onto the ice and be hard to shake off. It's why Skeen says his coach asks a lot of questions at practice. He doesn't just tell us about hockey, basically. He asks us how we're doing, like, not just on the ice, but, like, at school or anything. And he tells us what we can do to, like, improve as, like, people, not just as hockey players. And Skeen says he opens up to his coach when he's struggling. I'd tell him I'm having a bad day, and he'd understand, and he wouldn't make me, he wouldn't be, like, as much on me as usual, because he'd know I'd had a bad day. Sports psychologists say the traditional approach, buck up and shut up, can lead to burnout and doesn't necessarily improve a player's game. Well, two guests will offer their perspective today. Tyson Davis is with the Highland Hills Hockey Association in Westminster, and he's also Hayden Skeen's coach. And Tyson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Melissa Kutcher Reinhardt is head women's gymnastics coach at the University of Denver, has been for a long time. And Melissa, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Tyson, you've coached youth sports for about 25 years. Give us an example of how your thinking about mental health has evolved. 
Yeah, that's a, a great question. It, it's it's changed obviously over the years, and you're you're seeing a lot of benefits from it. I think, like you said, back in the day, you ask a coach, "Why are we doing this exercise?" and it was usually because I uh, I said so, and that was the answer. And now now players want to know why. Why are we doing it? Uh, how does this make me better? Um, what's the having having more purpose to what what they're trying to achieve i guess and so as coaches now we need to be aware of that we need to have the answer why and it makes a lot more fun um because now you really do get to engage with the players and have healthy conversations why do you think understanding why helps mental health though draw that connection for me sure you know it gives them i think it gives them more purpose um and more excitement you know i know it's sort of an old cliche but it's when they are having more fun um, they work harder at their skills and they work harder at their skills. They have more success. They have more success. They have more fun. Hmm. Um, so that's th- that, that the purpose is probably the biggest word that, that we use today. Purpose. Melissa Kutcher Reinhardt's you coach high level college gymnasts. And what's an example of how you're thinking about mental health has evolved? I actually think Tyson answered it absolutely perfectly. And I was kind of smiling. I remember the days with my coaches, of course, you know, they said what to do. They said jump and you said how high. You didn't ask questions about that. But I do think the why is critical. And I think that sense of purpose is is important. And I think it's good for them to know. Then they can um, attack it with passion. They understand what the technique is. They understand how that will build confidence and consistency in competitions. So I think answering that why is important. Does this uh, approach make players soft, though? I mean, is is there a is there a place for that kind of tough love, Tyson? <laughs> yeah, that's. Um, well, I mean, that's you want you want to push, but there there's definitely a balance there. Um, and what, what does it mean to be pushed and, and, you know, without, without taking the, the, it's a great, great line by Melissa, the passion away, you know, I think as coaches, our, our job is to, at times to get average people to do extraordinary things. And if we have that, that connection, we can understand better where they're at, um, what direction we need to lead them to. Um, I mean, it's really there's no black and white answer to it. It's, it's all a process and, um, you know, use the term, let the process handle itself let, let, allow them to grow, allow them to grow up, uh, and allow them to discover what they're doing and why they're doing it. I think what I heard you say there that resonates is that if you have the relationship built with the player, it's much easier to push them. It's much easier to ask the extraordinary. Uh, do you want to add a few words, Melissa, to this idea of when you push and uh, do you risk, being too soft, you know? <laughs> yeah, I actually think that's a great question. And I think, you know, our job, you know, we are chasing excellence. Um, and I think we we want to focus on grit and resiliency and perseverance and persistence. And honestly, for the rest of their life, we do actually want to teach accountability. And so it's finding that balance. I'm kind of, you know, taking one from John Gordon when he talks about love versus accountability. But I think you can't underestimate those traits. I think if it's done in a respectful way where we're explaining the why and that we also do set clear boundaries, right? And I'm also very big on learning from mistakes and having that growth mindset and doing something different the next time. Say more about accountability. That's interesting to me. What what does that mean in the sports context? 
I think it could mean a variety of things, right? It could be accountability to yourself. <laughs> it could be accountability to your team. It could be accountability to your university. It could be accountability to completing the, the goals for the day or the tasks at hand or the completion of assignments. So how are you balancing that when you have had no sleep because you had a final in school or you are having, you know, struggle from, you know, maybe uh, not feeling great from a, you know, mental health perspective on a given day. How are we balancing those two things? Tyson, you're not a psychologist yourself, but you emphasize mental health in your practices. Do you follow a curriculum of some kind? Is there a place that coaches turn for this kind of guidance? Yeah, you know, we've got a great relationship with Denver University and their, their master's program in sports psychology and, and we have their students come and spend time with our teams huh. and uh, like a once a week segment um sometimes more than that um and it's it's really it's fascinating to watch not only the, the students grow um as they finish their their master's degree but to watch our our players connect uh with those with those students it, it starts off slow um and then it's really interesting to sit back and watch as the season progresses that they they end up quietly going to the to the to the psychology students, and I would love to be a fly on the wall to hear what they're actually talking about. But I, I give them their space and let them, whether it's just venting, whether it's sharing an emotion, whether it's again going over not understanding something. It would it'd be fascinating to understand what some of those conversations are. Melissa, your team finished fourth in the country in 2019. And, you know, we all watched Simone Biles this summer talk about <laughs> the pressure she faced and her need to focus on her own mental health. Was it surprising to you that she withdrew from the Olympics and that she talked openly about her struggles? I would not say surprising. And, you know, I credit her for having the courage and the bravery and the vulnerability to speak up for what she needs and make decisions that were in her best interest from a safety standpoint. Um, and I can't imagine, I mean, there's pressure for all of us in all our different careers and areas of life, but I can't imagine the extraordinary pressure from the media and then all the things she was involved in. And so I know I can't even imagine what that must have been like, but I just credit her for continuing to shed a light um, in a positive way on mental health. When you see your players struggling with mental health, is there any trend to it? Are there any commonalities in what you hear, Tyson? Um, I don't know. The pressure, I think I think the young, like I'm dealing with young, much younger players. Yeah. And I, I do feel that there's... A, the pressure to succeed, the pressure to potentially get ahead. Um, I think that at times adults want to see instant gratification and um, we have to understand that it's a, it's a long-term development program and we want to, we want our kids playing <coughs> the sport when they are 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, when we know that that's when they're going to show their, show their potential. And unfortunately with those pressures, a lot of players, probably athletes in general, don't get to that age in, in the sport. They, uh, they, they drop out, they, they lose interest. And um, it's really unfortunate because we've often said in the hockey world, we've never seen the best hockey player because that player who could have been the best never made it through. Hmm. Is that a function of parents' behavior, do you think, Tyson? Uh, 
I would have to <laughs> try to be careful. At day, maybe, but uh, I, I, uh, I do think I think it is a, a parent, uh, an adult, I guess, view. Right? Uh, I heard a great analogy where, as adults, we see what's on top of the table, and little kids see the gum underneath the table. They, they, it's a much different view. And then cognitively, what can they really understand? What can they understand in emotion? Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating process that's to, to try to watch and, and overcome. Uh, I think what stands out of what you just said there is the instant results that it, <laughs> you, that adults might want to see in maybe their children's performance. Melissa, do you want to add a few words to this? Um, I'm, I'm just laughing because, you know, that's, it, it's, it's the society we live in. <laughs> so it's a really, it's a challenge and it's such an interesting topic and question. I would say here at the University of Denver, we're just so fortunate. We have tremendous resources in terms of sports psychologists or high performance coaches. And so, you know, it makes it easy for us, a little bit easy for us to just truly listen. I think it's also what Tyson said. You have to know your age of athletes and not only the age of athletes and their cognitive ability, but you have to know what motivates each particular athlete and different things are going to motivate different athletes. And so you have to be able to listen. You have to be able to know your athletes well, and you have to be able to know when to pull back and when to push forward. And I think that that's important to still continuing to build growth and those skills we talk about of grit and resiliency that they are going to need later in life. I'm curious to explore what motivates different young people. So, you know, winning might be one motivation. What are, <laughs> what are some other motivations you've sussed out over the years and tried to connect with? Um, you know, I think that's, again, a great question. Winning is definitely, for some, the biggest motivation. Mm -hmm. For others, it could be just playing a role on their team. For others, it could be getting 1% better than they were yesterday, or can they score a little higher on that particular event in the next competition? For some, you know, it, it could be very different. Hey, for some, it might be pleasing their family. <laughs> it might be a variety of factors. And sometimes that's not easy to tease out. And you really have to know what that is. Hopefully, most of the athletes are not at Tyson's level, maybe as much as he's developing that from the early stages. But by the time they get to us, hopefully they have some kind of self-motivation and you're just encouraging that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. You heard from Melissa Kutcher Reinhardt, head women's gymnastic co gymnastics coach, that is, at the University of Denver. Tyson Davis coaches for the Highland Hills Hockey Association. And we'll be right back with workers energized to organize in the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. 
Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Esterbrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. Workers at the HelloFresh facility in Aurora say the meal delivery company puts profits ahead of safety. After an accident left four workers seriously injured this summer, employees may unionize. The vote begins next week. CPR's Matt Bloom, who just joined our newsroom, is following the story. Hi, Matt. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Give us a better sense of what HelloFresh is and why workers may unionize. So HelloFresh is the world's largest meal kit delivery company. So what that is, their business model is delivering prepped lunches and dinners straight to your doorstep. So you can take it and cook it at home right in your kitchen. And as you can imagine, this grew like crazy during the pandemic. Mm. The workforce at its Aurora distribution facility almost doubled over the last two years. Orders overall at the company are up 70 percent from the beginning of last year. And all that growth and the pace at its facilities has made some of these workers extremely concerned about their safety. They also want better pay, get a slice of that growth. I visited a rally and heard stories from workers about this really uh, this one incident this summer that ignited this unionization effort. I want to hear about that incident, but maybe set the scene a bit for this rally. Right. So this was held outside of the company's distribution center in Aurora. You can hear their workers lining the street outside of the facility. They're waving colorful signs uh, as delivery trucks and cars drove by. There's a pretty large group there. And that's where I met Brandon Lowland. He's a forklift operator at HelloFresh. Uh, he moved to Aurora from the Marshall Islands a few years back and started working for the company right before the pandemic. He says that things got really busy really fast and safety ultimately was compromised. Uh, he says he witnessed one accident where a food pallet fell from about 30 feet up on a shelf and then injured four workers. I'm going to be honest. I don't really um, think about how unsafe it is until that situation like holy crap we could have been more safe about this you know he says that there hasn't been a big enough response from the company since that incident to improve things and he hopes a union could help i think that's the main thing that i want um for me and my coworkers, just to be heard where our safety is concerned and a lot of workers that I spoke to at the rally said the exact same thing, um, as well as wanting better pay to keep up with Colorado's uh, rising cost of living. Matt, what is the company saying in all this? HelloFresh declined an interview, but in a statement, a spokeswoman said, quote, we firmly believe that the decision to be represented by a union is an important one, and we respect each employee's right to choose or refuse union membership. They went on to say our employees are critical to everything that we do, and we prioritize their health, safety, and well-being above all else. But still, a lot of workers say that they're frustrated with the lack of action or what they see as a lack of action around safety and see forming a union as the only way to make things better for themselves. And they'll have that chance to voice their vote starting next week on October 28th. Nationwide, employees at, gosh, John Deere, Kaiser, Kellogg, just to name a few, have voted to strike recently. Uh, how does HelloFresh fit into all that? I actually spoke with James Walsh. He's a political science professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, about this. 
What he says is that attitudes around workplace conditions, and particularly around pay, have changed a lot over the past year and a half. I believe that the uh, experience of the pandemic convinced a lot of workers that going back to the barely surviving existence of, of minimum wage work was not an option. And so um, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing low-wage workers saying we are worth something more. Um, we have human dignity and we're going to organize. Right. He's speaking generally there. But that's exactly what I heard from HelloFresh workers, too, about their situation, is that pay is not enough to keep up with Colorado's cost of living right now. Which brings us to another story you've been following. Late last month, the Polis administration published a draft of its first ever overtime pay rules for Colorado farm workers. The state labor department is hammering out the details. What's the background here? During this past uh, legislative session, lawmakers passed a huge labor rights bill for farm workers. Many people called it historic. A lot of things that it did uh, were create a minimum wage for farm workers, mandate uh, certain rest breaks for workers. But one of the biggest changes that's being hashed out right now is that it directed the state's labor department to create the first ever overtime pay rules for farm workers. So what that looks like, uh, as written, they require employers to pay one and a half times a worker's regular rate if they work 60 hours or more in one week. It also has some updates built in that change in 2024 and 2025 to lower the number of hours to 56 for some employers. But again, that's still just a draft. Help us understand why this is such a big deal for this industry, in particular farming. Well, for decades, farm workers have never been paid overtime. That's just how Colorado labor law was written. Uh, Many labor advocates say that these laws are rooted in racism and white supremacy because a majority of farm workers are people of color. I went to a rally at the state capitol and heard from farm workers about this uh, straight from the source. Adolfo Hernandez of Weld County was one of them. He spoke through an interpreter. I would like to see the agricultural worker receive the salary that they deserve, the salary that it, that is owed to them so that they can provide, you know, food for their family, they can pay their rent, they can pay their bills. He says that he regularly works 80-hour weeks and never gets paid overtime. He mm-hmm. said that it's just unfair that someone who works in the ski industry or another hourly job would get paid overtime, but he and the thousands of other farm workers in the state don't. So these are major changes for farm workers and for farmers, too, I imagine. Yeah, correct. There are some in the industry that argue a year-round overtime rule just does not work in agriculture. So there's some pushback there because it's a very seasonal business that has very unique needs. One concern that I've heard from farmers is that they may have to start running multiple shifts of workers just to avoid all those overtime expenses for labor, which they say could then end up leaving some farm workers with just fewer hours. And if smaller to medium-sized farms can't find enough workers to support multiple shifts, their operations could be affected pretty significantly. The Colorado Farm Bureau, the Colorado Cattlemen's Association, and some other trade groups are putting pressure on the Polis administration right now not to lower those proposed overtime thresholds anymore. Okay, we know that the state labor department is hashing some of this out, but what happens next? Well, public comment is open now through early November, so anyone can go online, they can read these rules and share their thoughts. 
A lot of people are doing this from both the farming and the labor side of things. The Polis administration plans to take these draft rules and adopt a final set of overtime rules sometime in November. They will then go into effect late next year. Uh, Matt Bloom, before we go, I want to take just a minute to introduce you to CPR listeners, although your voice has been on Colorado's airwaves for some time. Um, you just joined our newsroom this month, though. Tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. I'm really excited to be here. So I, I grew up in Indiana and actually discovered public radio through NPR's podcasting. I was a huge podcast nerd. Um, I fell in love with it, decided to pursue a career in it. So after college, I packed up my car, moved out west and worked at a few local stations in Los Angeles before moving to Colorado four years ago. Um, I worked with NPR station KUNC up in northern Colorado for about four years, covering all sorts of things in Fort Collins, Greeley, Loveland, Estes Park, other communities up there. I'm down in Denver now, but I hope I can still get back up there for some stories and maybe visit a few breweries in Old Town, Fort Collins. Soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on with labor, as we discussed. Are there other areas or stories you're interested in? Definitely. So uh, similar to that topic, I'm, I'm, I'm just super interested in stories that impact people's financial lives directly and, and their day-to-day -day choices. So think housing, uh, business, the economy at large. Um, outside of work, when I'm not covering the news, I'm super creative. I uh, sing with the Denver Gay Men's Chorus, which oh, so is really fun. We might hear an art story or two from you. <laughs> yes, you might. I would love that. <laughs> okay, Matt, thanks so much. And come back anytime to Colorado Matters to share your work. Absolutely. Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Matt Bloom, CPR General Assignment Reporter, filing stories on air and at CPR.org. You can follow him on Twitter at Matthew underscore Bloom at Matthew underscore Bloom. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with General Colin Powell in his own words at the Aspen Institute. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. The Colorado State Capitol gleams with a dome of real gold put there to commemorate the Colorado Gold Rush. Its floors are built from white Yule marble, the state rock. And all through the building, you'll see walls covered in a beautiful pinkish stone with dramatic reddish-brown swirls and veins. That's Beulah Red Marble. Discovered west of Pueblo in the late 1800s, technically, Beulah Red is limestone that gets its blush from iron oxide. It lines the capital's hallways, arches over doorways, and holds up the columns in the rotunda. It's also never been found anywhere else. And almost the entire known supply of Beulah Red was used up, except for a few houses in Beulah, some fireplaces in Pueblo, and some blocks held in reserve for the capital. So far, unneeded. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. General Colin Powell was known as the favorite of presidents, a military leader and the first black U.S. Secretary of State. He died Monday at age 84. Powell's being remembered as an American hero who put country first. In 2012, General Powell spoke with Walter Isaacson in front of an audience at the Aspen Institute. They talked about his book, It Worked for Me in Life and Leadership. The opening chapter, I think, starts as a parade magazine. Somebody sees a little yeah. clip you have, and it's about your lesson. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah, it happened in 1989. I, I had been promoted to four stars, and I was the first black four-star general to be given a field command, so to speak. And uh, Parade Magazine decided to write a piece about me. 
the summer of 89, and uh, they, uh, wonderful fellow, David Wolachinsky, wrote the piece, and he was trying to close it out with something. He needed a hook. And so one of my assistants in my headquarters in Atlanta said to him, why don't you ask the general about those, all those little things he's got scribbled under his desk glass? And so David asked me about it. I said, these are just the little things I've collected over the years, little aphorisms and things like that, no big deal. There were a couple of dozen of them. And so he said, well, read me some of them. And so I read him the clean ones, <laughs> uh, the ones that were, you know, publishable. And I gave him, there were 13 of them. And he took the 13, and he closed this Parade magazine article in, in August of 1989 with these 13 little rules. And they went viral before the viral days. Um, and we've passed out thousands of these little cards uh, and they kind of took hold, and so they were in my first book, and since it worked the first time, I put it in my second book. Hey, We writers are environmentalists. Yeah. We recycle. <laughs> but I explained why they were rules, because in the first version, they were just, bam, get mad, get over it. Yeah. Uh, Alma loves that one. We've, we've just celebrated our 50th anniversary, and somebody asked her at the party, uh, <laughs> and asked her, how did the last 50 years? And her answer was, get mad and get over it. Um, and Give so, me an example of that in, in leadership, not in marriage, <laughs> if there's a difference. There is a difference. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Sofrino, my assistant, is here with me. And Peggy. she's been with me for, Peggy's been with me for 17 years or so, 20 years, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Peggy's a master of this. Um, I, I try to keep a fairly balanced approach in my life and in my dealings with the people who work with me and for me and who I work for. But every now and then you get mad. It's a natural human emotion. You get honked off. Something bugs you. Or you're working on a problem that is all-consuming and you start to change and become a little bit of a monster. Uh, and you get mad. Um, and you have to get over it quickly. So Peggy's a master of this. She knows when I'm out of sorts. She knows when I'm, when I'm totally immersed in something, uh, and I may snap at her, but she knows not to take it seriously because I'll be fine in another few minutes. And the, the real lesson was given to me by a wonderful officer by the name of General Jack Merritt mm -hmm. um, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, when I was a brigadier. He was a three-star, and he did something one day that I didn't like. I really wasn't happy with it, so I asked to see my boss. And so I went in there and I said, General, you shouldn't have done this. It's wrong. It isn't going to work. I'm telling you, sir, you shouldn't have done this. And uh, it, I'm, I'm really mad about it. And he just smiled at me and he came over to me and he put his arm around my shoulder. And he said, you know, Colin, the best thing about being mad is you get over it. <laughs> now have a nice day. <laughs> and he threw me out of his office. Uh, and I, I never forgot that. And I've internalized it. And I find that you can't stay mad if you want to have a good environment in your office. Just get mad and get over it and move on uh, and let it pass. And I found it to be a very, very useful advice. One of the others is don't let facts get in the way, which was an odd one. Yeah, it, it has to do with uh, facts and instinct. And the point here is that as you're working your way through a problem, assemble all the information you can, all the facts that you can, and look at those facts and see if they characterize the reality in which you're living. But at the end of the day, it's your instinct, your informed instinct, not a guess, but an informed instinct that you ought to rely on. 
You're the leader. You have the experience. You know more about the outside environment in which the organization is working than the people in the organization. And so get all the information you can, but don't let a particular fact stop you from doing something that your instinct says this is right. Eisenhower D-Day? Eisenhower D-Day is one of the examples I use uh, where Eisenhower is being given all kinds of facts with respect to the weather. Um, and he is told by his staff, finally, a couple of days before D-Day, there should be a break on June 6th. And Eisenhower took greatest risk perhaps a military commander has ever taken. He said, I think that'll work. And it wasn't just a matter of guessing about the weather. He knew the status of his troops. He knew what the Germans were doing. He knew so many other things that were going on. And at the end of the day, it was his instinct that said to him, go. But he also wrote the notes to be used in case it failed, taking all responsibility. A shorter version that's also in the book is, and I'm not sure this is an apocryphal uh, story, but General Grant in the siege of Petersburg in the latter stages of the Civil War, as he was you know, pushing Lee's Army of Northern Virginia to defeat, he was asleep one night in his tent somewhere around Portsmouth. And somebody came in and woke him up and said, General Grant, General Grant, we just heard word that General Lee is moving his army to, the, to our left flank, and he's going to roll up our left flank. And Grant uh, made sure he was wide awake. He rubbed his eyes a little bit. He looked up, he thought about it, and he said, that's not possible. And he went back to sleep yeah. and never did anything else. He went back to sleep. It's not possible. Now, that wasn't a guess. He knew Lee. He'd known Lee for decades, and he knew the strength of his army, he knew the strength of Lee's army, he knew what Lee's capability was, but he was still going on instinct, but it was an informed instinct. So the teaching point here is make sure that you have an informed instinct, then use your instinct. Don't use your instinct in the first instance. And the corollary of this is also in the book that says, as you're gathering information, when you have about 40% of all the information you're liable to get, Start thinking about making a decision. When you get to about 70% of all the possible information you can get, decide. Don't keep waiting or you'll miss the opportunity. And in the military, we say never be OBE, never be overtaken by events. Never let the decision become automatic because you didn't act. Mm -hmm. So it is what makes great leaders and great commanders, the ability to see the environment. And it's in military terms, but it's business terms as well. What's the environment in which I'm working? How much information do I have? Do I wait any longer, or is now the time to decide? And great leaders know how to inform their instinct and then act on their instinct when they're sure they're right. Will they always be right? No. Sometimes they're wrong and they fail. But the great leaders are those who have such an experienced, informed instinct that they are usually right. Did that instinct fail you on the intelligence on the weapons of mass destruction? Uh, yeah, but, you know, I say it probably did, but, you know, everybody believed the information we were being provided. The president used it in the State of the Union address. He used it in a very important speech he gave in the fall of 2002. Our allies believed it. Our commanders believed it. Um, and the intelligence community presented it as being accurate. And so I presented it uh, quite willingly to the United Nations at the request of President Bush, uh, but upon reflection, I only had four days to look at it, but upon reflection, um, it turned out that if we had spent more time really boring into this, we might have discovered some of the weaknesses of some of the sources. 
And remember, four months before I presented at the UN, the Congress passed a resolution on the basis of that same intelligence saying to the president, if you feel you have to use military force, uh, we, we, report, we approve it. And it was, it was a very overwhelming vote. Nothing like the first Gulf War, which was very close. Mm -hmm. But I've had, I've, you know, but nevertheless, in, this, in today's environment and with, with the way things are covered, I will always be seen as the one who went to the UN and presented the information. And so uh, it's, a, it's a blot on my record, and I'm stuck with it. And perhaps my instinct did fail me. I've even had members of Congress say to me, you know, I voted for that resolution after I heard your presentation at the UN. I said, no, sir, you voted for the resolution four months before yeah, right. you heard my presentation. <laughs> but, it, you know, you just, that's, it's mine. And I, I carry that burden, and I get asked about it almost every day. Uh, and I, I continue to carry it. Uh, and in this kind of media environment that we're in, uh, once you're sort of attached to an issue like this, uh, you're attached to that issue. What did you learn from it? Well, I learned once again that uh, boring, uh, take as much time as you can to find out what the right answers are. And in this case, uh, it was only four days, and uh, with a large group of people working on it. And the intelligence community was very, very satisfied with the intelligence they had. And it had been around for months. And it had not been challenged by any of the intelligence communities within our government. It was accepted by our, by our foreign allies who had their own intelligence sources. And it is not as if, uh, you know, it was totally wrong. We knew that Saddam Hussein had the capability to uh, develop weapons of mass destruction. Uh, what we missed was he didn't actually have them. Mm -hmm. and all of the intelligence community felt sure that he had them, but he didn't have them. But by going to war at that time, we removed any intention or capability in the future to have them. And so uh, even though I have to I've live with this, I'm not uh, upset or disappointed by the fact that we took him out and took his regime out. It was a terrible regime. Are you upset about the failure to apply the Powell Doctrine to the way we conducted the aftermath of the war? I don't think we conducted the aftermath of the war very well. Um, we, a number of issues were involved after the fall of Baghdad that if they'd been handled in different ways, the, the war might have come out differently and we would have resolved it much more quickly. I don't think we put enough force in immediately to secure the country. Uh, there was a view within the administration that it will all sort of snap back in place. Um, uh, let's disband the army. We don't need them. Let's disband anybody uh, who was involved in the Ba'ath Party organization and those organizations. Uh, I don't think we should have done that because the only, they were the only institutions that were there. Well, the Ba'ath, the army had already collapsed. Yes, but the structure was there. We could have refilled it. And so you will be, you'll be reading articles and books about that aftermath period for a long time to come. Um, while the country was descending into the insurgency, uh, it took a long time for the realization to hit that we had to put in more troops to stabilize it. It took another three years before President Bush boldly, in my judgment, made the decision to, uh, to have the surge uh, that essentially stabilized the country. Uh, with other things going on to stabilize the country, and now it is up to the Iraqis to determine their own destiny. But Saddam Hussein is gone, and there's no concern about ever having to worry about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So you think the war was a good idea? 
Whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, historians will be arguing forever. I did not oppose the war. I tried to avoid the war by persuading President Bush, uh, and he accepted my persuasion, to take it to the UN to try to solve it peacefully. But I knew at that time that if he wasn't satisfied with what the UN was doing, doing and he had every reason not to be satisfied, if he decided that military action was necessary, I'd support him, and I did. Well, in your book, you sort of say there was no decision point. Did I misread that? Oh, there was clearly a decision point. We just didn't know when No, it but happened. I meant a yeah. process for making a formal decision, and there should was, there have been. There was a long-term debate about it over time, but there was never a single meeting. I don't think you'd find Don Rumsfeld or, or Condi or anyone who would say that there was a meeting where we all sat down and say, yes, uh, this is this is a, a decision meeting, and uh, we're going to discuss it here, and then a uh, decision will be made. President looked at it all, he reflected on it all, but he made a decision and then announced it to each of us, and it wasn't a single meeting that made that decision. Yeah, in your book you make a strong point about you should always be able to argue back. Yeah. But once a decision is made, you got to support it loyally. Uh, yeah, this is the way we were trained in the military. I, I've always encouraged my subordinates to argue with me. Uh, the more senior I became, the more difficult it became. Uh, you know, it's good to be the chairman. Uh, but I would, I would uh, bring junior officers into my office on issues that I was working on and encourage them. I would take my jacket off so they didn't see all the stuff on my jacket. Uh, and say, come on, what do you got, Captain? Uh, and uh, encourage them to argue with me. Uh, and I would encourage my senior subordinates to argue with me. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm right. Tell me what you think. You're no good to me if you're not telling me what you think. Not enough to just sit there and say, what do you want, Chairman? Tell me what you think. But after a while, you can't just keep talking. And once I have got it all, and then I add my instinct and experience to it, because I'm bearing the ultimate responsibility, and I know more about the outside environment than anybody in the inside environment. And then once I make my decision, I want everybody to leave that room thinking that it was their idea. I don't want anybody going out saying, man, this guy really screwed it up. No. Once I decide, uh, you go out and you are my champions. And don't come back and tell me that you are reluctant to do this so you don't want to do it for any reason whatsoever unless... You have new information for me, or you know something has happened in the, in the in the situation that changes totally, and you have an obligation to tell me that. So don't go off foolishly, but at the same time, once I made a decision, in the absence of something that causes me to change that decision, I expect total loyalty in its execution. And I also have a bunch of guys in the back room writing contingency plans if I'm wrong. Um, that's the way I was trained as a soldier. The now late four-star General Colin Powell speaking with Walter Isaacson at the Aspen Institute in 2012. Powell died Monday of complications due to COVID-19. He was fully vaccinated, but blood cancer left him severely immunocompromised. Powell was 84 years old. Governor Bolas has ordered flags lowered to half-staff on all public buildings in honor of the general through Friday. Be right back. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
For fans, it's a bitter pill to swallow. The Broncos lost to longtime rivals the Raiders Sunday. For years, one person was at the center of the rivalry, former Raiders owner and social justice trailblazer Al Davis, who passed away 10 years ago this month. CPR's Vic Vela looks back on Denver's disdain for the man behind the silver and black. When the Broncos and Raiders meet, it's usually pretty intense. Oh, we have a fight on the other side. Helmets being thrown. Tlaib grabbed it off. Referee is down and look at holding on to his ribs. Oh, these are emotional teams. They don't like each other. I think the game in Denver was one of the most physical that I have seen in a long time. Rocky Mountain showdown between the Denver Broncos and their arch rival, the Oakland Raiders. Intensity and animosity guaranteed. And at times, the disdain between the teams extends off the field. Vicki Owens is the granddaughter of Gerald Phipps, who owned the Broncos from 1961 to 1981. Al Davis sent black and silver roses to my grandmother's funeral, so I don't even know what he sent to my grandfather. What? Are you serious? <laughs> I'm dead what? serious. Why would he do that? Oh, he and my grandfather hated each other. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, oh, God, yes. The autumn wind is a raider, pillaging just for fun. He'll knock you round and upside down and laugh when he's conquered and won. That menacing NFL Films narration is best known by Raiders fans as the Battle Hymn of Raider Nation, an organization that for decades has embodied the personality of its infamous former owner, Al Davis. Just win, baby. (laughs) And boy, howdy, did Davis get under the skin of Broncos players like legendary Denver linebacker Tom Jackson. There was something about the Raiders, just win, baby, phraseology, just win, baby, and you can do whatever you want. And they did. Their arrogance would fit better in this age and time than it did (laughs) back then. Jackson was part of the Broncos' tremendous orange crush defense of the 1970s and 80s, a time when Al Davis's Raiders really dominated football, Jim Sakamano led the Broncos' public relations department for more than 30 years. Al Davis is this guy on the sideline dressed in black and kind of a snidely whiplash character of football, and they beat you all the time. They had these uh, tough guys, and fitting the name of the Raiders, like pirates, you know, take no quarter, give no quarter. Under Al Davis, the Raiders had a notorious bad boy image. While many NFL owners might think twice about hiring players with bad reputations, Davis was the opposite. His rosters were often filled with malcontents. Amy Trask is a former Raiders CEO. This is an organization owned by a man, Al Davis, who gave people second chances, and in many cases, third chances, four chances, and in many cases, more chances than others thought those players should be given. And over the 39 years Davis owned the Raiders, his team and the Broncos were involved in many high-stakes battles. Mile High Stadium in sunny Denver, Colorado. Never before has a championship game been played here. Today, however, the Denver Broncos will try to capture their first title ever. The 1977-78 season is when the Broncos-Raiders rivalry really took off. Moses in motion. The Raiders were defending Super Bowl champions, while the Broncos were in the playoffs for the first time ever. The Broncos won that game and went on to play in their first Super Bowl. 
But Al Davis didn't handle losing to Denver well. And in the offseason, he lobbied for a new NFL rule that would forever change the way the game is played. Tom Jackson played in that 78 AFC title game. The rule was you could bump receivers all over the field until the ball was in the air. Our coach told us no one will ever be open because if you allow us to hit everybody on the field, we are going to become expert at disrupting every route. Broncos defenders manhandled Raiders receivers that game, and that led to the so-called Chuck rule that's still in effect today, which prohibits defenders from making contact with receivers after five yards. Elway guns it over the middle, and it is Rod Smith, free and clear. Touchdown, Denver. Was it just another week when you guys were playing Al Davis and the Raiders? Absolutely not. It was nowhere close to a regular week. Rod Smith was involved in a lot of heated clashes with the Raiders during his 14-year career with the Broncos, particularly when Al Davis and former Broncos coach Mike Shanahan were involved in a public spat over money stemming from Davis firing Shanahan when he coached the Raiders. Smith says Broncos players would sometimes gently remind Davis of the money they felt he owed Shanahan when Davis would walk on the field before games. We have this little warm-up that we do. Just so happened one of the footballs almost hit Al Davis. I'm not going to say any more than that. I'm not going to say who threw it. Like, every time we played, if he was in the area, the football always almost hit him. The Raiders and Broncos, they can't stand each other. Like, good hates evil, and evil hates good. So, Al Davis certainly brought out a lot of feelings from Broncos players and fans over the years. But looking back at Davis's legacy, it's important to note that he was also a trailblazer in many areas. Davis was a fierce defender of racial justice. In the 1960s, Davis refused to play in any city where black and white players had to stay in separate hotels. Davis hired the first Latino head coach in NFL history, Tom Flores, and the league's first black head coach in Art Shell. He also hired Amy Trask who was the first woman to ever run an NFL team. You can love the Raiders and you can have loved Al, or you can hate the Raiders and you could have hated Al. But if we're all being intellectually honest, we'll acknowledge together that he did something decades and decades before others thought to do it. And when Davis would rub people the wrong way, he was still charming in his own way, says Tom Jackson. We came through the airport at the same time. And Al, out of nowhere, goes, you know, I think you would have made a good Raider. And I thought, well, that is certainly his version of a compliment. But let's not get too cuddly about Al Davis. I mean, these are the Raiders, after all. Amy Trask. I remember talking with a colleague at one of the other AFC West teams. So I'll leave it to you to guess whether it was the Chargers or the Chiefs. And we've had a good laugh when we agreed Yeah, we both hate the Broncos. Well, Amy, I'm sure every Broncos fan will tell you the feeling is mutual. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. With thanks to my favorite team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, 
And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.